Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is day is as day and the darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret place intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with mal malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Good morning, Christ Central Church. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church, and for the last couple months, I've been here every other week. Um, I really am still the pastor at Christ Central Church. Uh, just been busy doing some denominational work. I'm on the board of Covenant College um, and uh, just went there to do some things. I serve with our campus ministry, and they're in a search for a national director, and I'm on that search team. And just, over, just, just a bunch of things, just a busy season for boards and committees and all those things. And, you know, when I go to these things and um, I'm able to speak into it for whatever reason, sometimes I am like for RUF, I was a token black person. Like, we need you on advisory committee. So I've been on there for like 10 years. Like, usually you roll off every four years. 
Thank you that Russ is, uh, Pastor Russ Whitfield is on there officially um, as part of the staff at RUF for uh, multicultural, um, intracultural um, uh, development for our campus ministry. But I've been holding it down, you know, as for that for years. And so I, I just, I went to RUF when I was at Clemson, um, that campus ministry, so I really appreciate it. But um, so... When I go to these things, I realize that what I do and who I am is definitely God's work and how he put me together and brought me to this place. But I feel like when I go out of town and do these things and speak into these things, I speak for the body of Christ Central Church. Do you realize that? When I go and do these conferences, like I did the, the, the conference up in New York for a church, like, tell us about how church works. And I'm like, ah, I can tell you what goes on at Christ Central. Like I can tell you what God has done among us. You are that ministry. Through me, as I go out, like as an individual, I bring Christ Central Church right there. Um, I had an opportunity to speak yesterday morning for, at the Presbytery meeting um, uh, in Winston-Salem for that Presbytery up there. The first African-American to be ordained and licensed in that Presbytery, that happened yesterday. And, um, of course, I saw Pastor Giorgio, who planted this church with us. Uh, he says hello to you. And I got up there and I said, you know what? I feel kind of weird because the person who introduced me was the race committee guy. And I'm like, in the eschaton, like as things are progressing, I got up and I said, you know what? Hopefully we don't have to have a race committee guy, you know, and that me preaching won't be a thing, right? Like, oh, we got the black guy preaching, a black, like eventually. And so um, just some of the insight I was able to give them and talk to them, it's because of you, what God's done here. Like I wouldn't have anything to say if God wasn't at work in your lives. And so I just want you to know that, um, yeah, that, that what God is doing here is incredible. And one of the things he did this weekend, of course, was Truth's Table. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. I was in my counseling session and I was telling my therapist, um, I was like, uh, you know, I go to LDR every year and I've been going and I listen to Truth's Table. I said, you know why? So that these African-American women can teach me. So I can grow in my faith. I need that. And my therapist, she was like, what? And I was like, please don't come to Truth's Table because if you cross over here, then you're going to have to fire me as a client. But it, it, like, listen to it, but don't come and be all friendly and become a member and all that. Because then, anyway, y'all know how it works. But anyway, but I definitely, I don't know what that's got to do with anything. But I appreciate you and what they've taught me um, this weekend. Um, and uh, let me say that uh, Tim and Christine and Nicodemus, why don't y'all stand up back there? I want y'all to know that the um, reason I want to recognize them is uh, they ran a justice conference a couple of weeks ago, right? The 22nd and 23rd, is that right? The 21st, I'm sorry, my dates all running together. And um, it wasn't like, hey, can Christ Central Church do this? God gave Tim a vision. And had him go out and bring people together and bring people from out of town and do this justice conference. This is what it means to engage the world with the renewed dignity that comes from Christ. And, and yeah, you can clap for that. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. And um, we all have a part to play in this.
And I told you, go to your spheres of influence and make a difference where God would have you to make that difference, right? You don't have to become a different culture or, or, or a different person in order to do that. God has called you to the bank, to the school, in your areas of privilege, in your relationships to make a difference based on what you experience here through the gospel. Through like the, the deconstructive and constructive work that goes on in this congregation in the way God has put it together. You go back, you make a difference. And guess what? You're going to have an opportunity, right? We're going to beef it up, right? At Thanksgiving, you're going to go back to your circle, right? And you know how them Thanksgiving tables go, right? I fall right in. I'm telling y'all, I, I, I'm not holy all the time. When I get around family and people, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. and I just find my mouth and stuff, getting into things and saying things. It's very difficult not to just go for the status quo, right? And you have an opportunity to be influential, right? Kelly, I'm not always holy, am I? Okay. You look surprised. Are you just surprised I admitted it? I get with my brothers, it's a mess, y'all, okay? It is awful. I become 16 again, and I love it. And we have wives and they're around like, and kids and they're like, there's no security with y'all. What's going on? Anyway, let, let us go to this uh, scripture. Um, the, the, the time I spent talking, that is not in the hour, like the sermon time. Thank you. It's truth table fault that is going along today because everybody's all full and want to talk, you know. Anyway, we continue in our sermon series entitled, I'm asking for a friend today. As we seek the Bible for some of the questions y'all sent me via email of things you see as barriers of belief for you and the world around you. And we just came off dealing with the question of, does the Bible promote misogyny? And I thought I was only going to preach on that once. And it turned into a three-part sermon. Right? And again, thanks to Truth Table. Okay? They're getting a lot of credit today. Thanks to Kelly Brown. Right? Thanks to the other women in the congregation, our women shepherds, you wrote that sermon, right? And as I'm preaching it, based on some of the things I know you've taught me and told me and, and corrected me on and pulled me to the side and confronted and made me feel real weird, that you, that, that you helped me preach that. Because I found myself not in charge or ahead of the message, but also needing to be changed by the message, right? And, and some of y'all are checking me. I got checked the other night after I got up afterwards and I was like, hey, I made a little joke like, hey, I had to come up here and clean it up now that y'all done gone truth table. And it was a joke. And Jeremiah was like, did you see that microaggression that you did? I'm like, no, I preached three sermons on misogyny. I don't do microaggressions. But Jeremiah was right, right? You, you just catch yourself, right? You kind of, you know. Anyway, that ain't what this is about. And this week, uh, we are going to slide a little bit to a, a much easier topic. <laughs> In answer to questions I received about sexuality, mainly dealing with the diversity of presented sexualities. Right? From heterosexual to LGBTQ and all the sexual variances people self-identify as and with, right? How should the church address sexual diversity? Well, 
um, I have to sandbag a little bit first because this is not a full sermon because this is not a full sermon on human sexuality and it deserves a lot more than I can bring you in the two sermons I have to put it in because I took a little longer in some other ones. And because I am not an expert on it just because I'm ordained in the PCA and went to a seminary, right? And I think sometimes we assume if we're in this position that we're experts on it and that's how it gets messed up, right? Um, but I'm going to do my best to answer this question of dealing with sexual diversity like I've done with other sermons in this series by establishing trailheads, by establishing some talking points, some biblical markers instead of exploring the whole landscape of this topic. And maybe I'll come up with a good bibliography and I'll have some things that, and, and you know, some links you can click to listen to some things. There was just a revoice, just a conference called a revoice conference in St. Louis that really explored this in deeper ways. And I encourage you, I'll try to get some of that to you from um, Greg and, and make sure it gets to you. But, um, but because is what, I, what I want to realize is we'll see today, sexuality can be and become complicated. And we sometimes, I know I'm tempted because I believe in systematic theology, right? I'm confessional. I want to simplify it and just kind of put categories around it. But, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated but believers, here's the good news, have a God and a message and a ministry that not only acknowledges, but embraces the complicated lives and sexuality of human beings. Right? This psalm is familiar to evangelicals as a coup de gras. Gosh, my mouth almost stopped. I tried to be all French, y'all. I know what it means, okay? But the coup de gras, right, against against arguments for abortion, right? This is the main passage we use. This is the main sword, right? Or, or, or against a woman's right to choose in a pro-life, pro-choice deba debate. That life begins at conception. Well, I would argue that it is God's coup de grace against the mistreatment, wholesaling, stereotyping, and disregard of human beings, period. This psalm does not just belong to the abortion debate. It belongs to the humanity debate. And a part of our humanity, an expressed part of our humanity, is our sexuality. And what does the psalm tell us about addressing sexual diversity prevalent in our world? Three things I want us to recognize just to kind of get things flowing in this direction, right? By recognizing that God knows everyone. Right? That secondly, God designed everyone. And finally, God is with everyone. Okay. You know, I'm going to split some hairs later, right? But there you go. Look at verses 13 through 16 that was read to you from Psalm 139. It says this, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one, yeah, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You know what the psalm is telling us in part here is that there is not one detail about anyone that is hidden from God and that God does not know. 
Even the darkest things and the darkest places, places when I say dark, I'm not talk, putting a moral tent on it. I'm, I'm talking about unseen, right? Like darkest places where, where our sexuality sometimes lives and hides, even away from those who have that sexuality and from other people outside of it. This is saying that your history and how it is fed, how you feel and act and live and lean is not hidden to God. He sees it and he sees you. In fact, verse 11 and 12 says this. If I say surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is dark, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. God is saying that, there, that, that that is not, that the things that are not known to everyone else, you know the stuff that, that frees you to say, you don't know me, right? When someone talks, you don't know me. You, you can't say, you can't say that about me. You can't think that about me. You, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've been through. God knows, right? And, and here's the crazy thing. The Bible teaches that he knows you even better than you know yourself. I've shared this with you. Sometimes I get, you know, my dad, when I was growing up as a kid, when you get a teenager, you think you're smart now, right? And then I would start talking. He goes, Howard, son, I know you better than you know yourself. I'd be like, no, huh? I'm just going to shut up, right? Look, look at what the psalmist says here in verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The writer is saying in part, when it comes to knowing myself, hear this now, I am so complicated and had so little to do with my own design myself that I cannot fully and completely understand my own God-given and at the same time sin-infected humanity. And by extension, guess what? Also, my sexuality in many ways is a mystery. That is okay to say, I don't know why. You know, some of you know, but a lot of folk don't know why I lean this way or that way completely. Or why someone else is this or that way or on the sexual spectrum where they are. You don't know exhaustively and completely. You can't know what and like God alone completely knows and sees. Which means this, we must look outside of ourselves and our own uh, determinations, right? We must, like the psalmist says here in verse 23 and 24, let God search us and tell us and instruct us and tell us, Lord, what is going on inside of us and, and others and, and what and how is good or not with us? In other words, we must let and believe God alone is completely right when and what he speaks to us and our sexuality. But letting God speak and hearing what God is saying in the Bible is not the same thing as knowing it all. Right? And this is especially important. As we deal with complicated human beings and sexuality as believers or not. Because this is not about us knowing it all. But about us believing God knows it all. And has revealed some things about, about us in and through his word. And hear me. Even then. Right? 
After we hear what he has said, we must pray for understanding and meaning and message and motive and manner and the miracle of what it means to know what God's word says and then apply it through grace in our lives. Right? It's a process because some of us, we just get the information and we go running. We go addressing the world. I got this information. Look at this verse in the Bible. And you have completely missed that God, the gospel is more than a message. It is a ministry and a motive, right? And a manner of how God speaks to us. Right? So we look at the word of God as less of how to know how we can be right and set everybody right, right? But knowing in order to care. Remember what God calls us to, right? We're not called to just know. I know, I know he bad. I know he good. I know whatever they are, they ain't right, right? That's not the ministry of the gospel to just know. I know it's great. I know it's hard. I am one of those people. I was attracted to, you know, the seminary I went to and Reformed theology and the confessional Christian thing because I love to know so I can feel secure when I walk around people. I'm not talking to them, but I know, right? I remember hearing this phrase that the biggest bull in the China shop is a young Calvinist, right? Right? I remember I lost, you know, you think I got my theology right. I'm going to gain a bunch of friends. I lost all my friends. John Calvin's right, y'all. Black man walking around. John Calvin's right. I didn't know nothing about Augustine yet. John, even though Calvin used Augustine, you know, he kind of harvested the work, you know. He took the corn and made tortillas, right? Like that kind of thing. But and, and Augustine had the corn. And, you, y'all get it. Y'all get it. And I walked around. I lost all my friends and all my credibility. And my, I was t- bringing people to the Lord, telling people about Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I was averaging about six or seven kills a year, right? Like bringing people. Sorry, y'all. I was in one of the ministries where it was about getting the kills, right? If you were to die tonight, you know. Anyway, so like I, I was up there. But when I became a Calvinist, y'all. I not only stopped witnessing, I lost friends. You know why? Because I knew. My mom hit me on the head with a biscuit pan. She did. The woman who led me to the Lord, because she all Pentecostal and she don't know about Reformed theology. And I remember sitting at the table and said, Mama, you, you just... You're just out there. You're just floating around. You don't know what God's doing because you don't know what he's saying. You need to look at his word. You need to look at this Westminster Confession of Faith, blah, blah, blah. And I remember I got up from the table and I just walked off. I didn't see her coming. Boom. Right on the back of the head. It was almost like she was trying to knock that knowledge out, right? Or at least knock it in the right place, right? And so, <laughs> that, that was all free. That's not written in the manuscript. We know in order to care. Y'all hear this? Call. Comfort. Call people to the grace of God they're separated from. So as the psalmist is implying, we trust God first and foremost in knowing us and knowing how to deal with ourselves and each other and knowing his means and method and ministry of the gospel in reaching folks who are separated from his dignity and grace for them. 
And here's the main credential beside being God and knowing everything for us to trust what he has made us to know, to know when it comes by extension, human sexuality. Look at verse 13. Well, I'm not going to read that whole thing again, but um, look at, yeah, you, we've read it all. I'm not going to do it. Um, but here's what we know from verse 13 through 18. All right. Your design is completely his doing. Right? And let me explain what this means. Because you're all like, I got some messed up things. Did God do that? But we're going to get to that. But I want you to know, how he designed us is not for human tampering. Right? It is a top-down, top-secret approach. So we, like the psalmist's approach to figuring out what's going on with him, looks to God as the original manufacturer of his humanity saying... I need you, God, to make sense of what I'm feeling. Because you not only know me, you designed me. You know, I like to play mechanic, Mr. Fix-It. And I've actually been successful. On Mondays, I like to put that one suit, the thing with the little cursive name on it. I want to get one that says Howard on it. But... I've got like three or four of those full zip-up suits. And I go down to the garage where the tools are. Not just like what I'm going to build. Right? So what I've learned is, man, you can find all kind of parts on eBay and Amazon. Just little pieces. I love finding the, the little broken piece. Right? And you can fix it. And, well, oh, man, it takes this kind of screw with this kind of thread. I love finding that stuff. You thought you were hidden onto the experts. I found it. But one thing I realized, if you get a part for your car or appliance or technology off eBay, it costs a lot less than going up to the Toyota dealership. Right? So Kelly's window was broken, and I set out to fix it. You know why? Because YouTube. You can do If you got YouTube, you can do anything. <laughs> that guy will show you, or woman, or whoever, they're going to show you how to do it. I mean... And you can type in it, you know, I got a little thing that broke in my car. This is what it is. And they show you, and I look at it, and I have my computer in the garage getting all greasy and everything, and I am doing it. Okay, that's all free. Gosh, this is going to take forever. So, <laughs> Kelly's window was broken in her Toyota, right? And it, would, it was off track and broke, and I looked, and, and I opened the, 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 the door, right? Like, undid the thing, and I'm like, I'm in. And it was a little piece, right, that was broken, right? I'm going too deep. So little piece was broken, and so I went to Toyota, and I said, I just need the little piece. Sorry, we changed it. You can't get the little piece. The little piece is part of the whole window, $250. If we do it, if we do it it'd be $500. I'm like, I'm going to eBay. $99 later, she got a nice window. Now, it ain't tinted like the rest of the windows. <laughs> But that's the point, right? That's the point the psalmist is trying to make. Nothing gives you that fit and warranty like what they, what they describe as an OEM, right? The original equipment manufacturer part. That means getting the part from the one who made it. Getting the directions and manual from the, uh, for the part from the one who made the car in part originally. And it speaks volumes when it comes to understanding the sexual part of us, doesn't it? My dad, he went to his little... 
I shouldn't be talking to my dad like that, but he, he kind of went through his little midlife crisis. He was making more money than ever. We all had, he waited to make more money than ever with that tour guide company after we had our own jobs, right? He didn't have it when I was in high school and I couldn't get a car and I had to ride with other people, right? Like he was a school teacher, you know, we, we, anyway. But he bought this Porsche, right? And I remember he, he and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, listen, black man. From the civil rights era, right? Alfonso Brown from Rantoul, South Carolina, right? Mr. Geechee. Like, listen, listen. He said he went to the Porsche dealership and, you know, the engine in the back, y'all, right? So he goes there and he was like, hey, it has a cover on it. Even you open it, it has this thing that says Porsche as he bolts on it. He says, let me see the engine. You know what the man said? Why do you want to see it? My dad said, because I bought it. He said, I understand that, Mr. Brown, but <laughs> your Porsche always belongs to Porsche. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> we'll show it to you, but are you planning on tampering with it? He's like, please don't. Just bring it back to us. Right? It, it, it's technical. We, we value our cars. We don't want them sitting on, on cinder blocks in somebody's front yard because somebody's cousin said they could fix it. <laughs> you know how it goes. Yeah, I know how to fix that. Them Germans don't have nothing on me. Click, 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 pow. Oh, Lord. You, it's happened. We had our Honda get in a wreck and cousin so-and-so, he could fix it. Man, then we didn't have that Honda for six months for about two days worth of work. Okay, I'm going too much. Y'all, it's the truth table women, y'all. But he, he, the guy said, I'll show you in my presence, but don't take off this lid. Always bring it back here to the dealer to do it right, or it will cost you more and break later. Right? You know, I, I remember I got my, Kelly hates that BMW I bought. Remember that? It was an older model, y'all. I, I ain't big ball. Uh, okay, anyway. But I, I went and got this used car, and I was so happy. Because I was trying to keep up with Ebony's husband. Her husband ain't here, so I got to call you out. Ebony's husband, David, he's like this BMW guy. And he's a mechanic. And you know how I like to pretend to be like other people? Because I'm not happy with who I am completely. So <laughs> I, 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 I looked at David. I'm like, that's the kind of man I want to be. He can go in and fix the car. He's like, oh, I, can, I don't even have to look at your car. I can just hear it coming down the street. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. Zip, zip. <clears throat> he can fix it. That's who I want to be. I quit the ministry. I'm going to be a David working there. Right? And, and he had a BMW, so I thought I can be a BMW lover too. Right? And, 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 and he's a mechanic, and he told folk, and he tells folk, you know what? If you just want a reliable car that's easy to fix, get a Honda or Toyota. If you want ease of repair and longevity, if you're going to forget to change your oil, if you don't have money to pay for it to get fixed, do not get a BMW. Get a Honda or Toyota, right? I learned this from him. High performance is not the same thing as easy or cheap. It means technically tight. Humans are technically tight, complicated, high-level created 
for high performance for God's grace and glory creations. And we are not easy to figure out or how we are put together in the top secret hidden engineering department of God the creator. That's the beginning of the kind of humility necessary when we address sexual diversity. That you are not a Porsche mechanic. You don't have the skills to actually tinker in people's lives, throwing your little wrench in there because you think you saw it on TV, right? But what makes it much more complicated, though, is that each one of you technically superior creations by God, guess what the Bible is teaching? You're custom made. Now, that adds something else. That though there are some basic human factors that only God can give, like being branded with the indelible worth and image and likeness of God, we all got that. But the placing of that brand, as the scripture says in verse 15, the way that brand tag was woven into your life is completely custom. It makes you a top secret design because according to the way this psalm reads, you are an individual like no one else in the world. And not only that, but how and why you are different from others is not clearly or easily or technically understood. Everyone has that je ne sais quoi. Oh, I did good on that one. That's sort of, I just don't know what it is, but it is something special quality. And that is God's knowing how and why and not ours to easily section off and tag and put in the category box or discard. It is designer's privilege to allow loan design and thus know what it all means. Right? Sexuality is more than a technical outworking of our biology. It comes out and is tied to some of that secret place design, I will argue. Sometimes we just don't know why this attracts us. Or why this thing gives us pleasure. Or makes us, as the psalmist says, go here or go there. Sometimes we are too complicated to make conclusive decisions and values and moral or, or, or determine someone is morally distant from God because of what we think we see or know. I bring this up because there are debates of whether someone was born this way or became this way or decided to go this way sexually, right? We'll get to maybe some of that more of that in the next sermon. But we must accept as an answer that we don't always know. And sometimes that person doesn't always know how and why. Every single one of us woke up sexually on some square of the sexual spectrum. And you really don't know completely and exhaustively how you ended up there. And trust me, you think there's a lot of variances outside of the heterosexual squares? In the heterosexual squares, there's a lot. Right? So I think it'd probably be a little shameful if I were like, let me see what y'all into. Right? Like, what, what are you heterosexuals into? Like, and, and, and I'm not trying to say, and what I want to make clear is that, that heterosexual or other, like, we're on a sexual spectrum headed toward glorification. We're moving there, right? But we have to be honest 
that sometimes we don't know how we came out liking this or being like this or this don't feel right to me or this feels right. And when this person hugs me and that person hugs me, I just, and that person really looks good and this, I just, it's crazy. So I don't argue. No, you weren't born that way because you were fearfully and wonderfully made, right? I, I just don't know. I don't know what all went in. Because guess what? We're going to get here now, right? So, so just here, just, just hang with me. So we seek God for help in bringing his grace and love despite the unknown, technical, and sometimes hidden details of our resultant sexualities. And we approach them with a humility that says, they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it has not been given to me to tinker and demand and devalue or value them outside of their being made in the image and likeness of God. So I approach and address like you would a technical or artistic masterpiece of God. I approach people with fear and wonder and not rigid sureness and pride. Right? But not just because humans are a top secret design of God. God, that same God, decided after Adam and Eve, our first mother and father, fell into sin and brought sin into the world and infecting every one of us. But he would continue to have more of us come into this world. He made that decision. He should have been like, boop, that's it, I'm starting over. But he went ahead. Which means the psalmist shows us that everyone is designed by God, hear this, with contaminated parts. Made to live in a contaminated place. Y'all want to talk complicated now? Right? Look at first. Okay, we've already looked at verse 13 through 15 enough. Right? About him knitting us together in our mother's womb. Right? Knitting all the pieces together. Knitting in that brand. Right? But I'm going to bring in another psalm to help us out here. Listen to what Psalm 51 verse 5 says. Behold, I was brought forth, born in iniquity or sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Birth is not the, life is not the only thing that happened at conception. Sin and brokenness happened at conception too. Right? So, so hear this. This, this means that God, did, what God did in designing us was fearfully and wonderfully made. All God did in designing us was pure and perfect, but the place he has caused us to grow, the stuff, the human stuff that's biologically and soulishly that he put, used to put us together from conception to grave and what we are mixed with inside our hearts and minds is contaminated. God perfectly designed and knit us in the soup, in the environment. He perfectly pulled together and knit contaminated pieces and then knit in the brand label and, and then let us with all of his design, divine design, be born into this contaminated world. And that we know to be true. I was talking to somebody about Supreme. Y'all know what Supreme is, name brand? Y'all don't know? Okay. My, I, I, I have a teenager, Okay. So Supreme clothing and label, that's everything, right? So the guy was like, man, if it has Supreme on it, it's like three or four times the cost of anything else, right? They have a Supreme ladder, a step stool. Because it has Supreme on it, it's like three or $400, right? Why? It's just wood. I'm a step on it. 
right? And I, I think that speaks to how God designed us. His, his label that is knit in, right? God's image and likeness is knit in to people who are pretty in the world in very dirty places. And we look at it and it's easy to say, a step stool, right? A human being, them, that. But it bears the image and likeness of the maker. Right? But, but the problem is, it is in this world, right? So how our sinful hearts affect how and who we become, how this world and our history affects our sexuality, again, is too complicated Do we completely know how it all goes together. Look at the factors in David's life real quick. You got his own thought life in verse 2. He's experienced and affected by where he has been environmentally and thus emotionally and spiritually. He talks about going from heaven and hell in verse 8 and everywhere in between, light and darkness and here and there, all over the place. And then look at the fact that he has to deal with predators in the next verses uh, and those who have evil intent for him to molest and abuse his humanity or call it and shape it and damage it away from what God intended. I mean, look at verse 19 through 20 with me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not... Yes. Okay. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, there's some messianic uh, stuff going on here where Christ comes and he hates the enemies of, our, of who we are, right? He becomes a psalmist in that way. And then the sum of that is what? Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Hear carefully, y'all. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalm is the saying, all I have been through in this life has created an anxiety. And a, I'm, like, I'm not sure, an insecurity, a dent, a confusion even, a hard to figure out whether I am feeling right or wrong in this way or not, or acting right or not, or living out right or wrong, that the human experience in this broken place has taken all that you have fearfully and wonderfully and been made and caused to be made to be anxious, right? To be grievous, to be hard to see and know how wonderful you are. And by extension, I am because of sin, my sin, the world's sin, the lies and the half-truths and injustice, the fact that there's obviously beautiful and wonderful instincts somewhere in me that I am not as bad as I could be, but I'm a lot worse than I may know, that in that mix-up, things come out kind of unclear and unknown, you know, when it comes to human sexuality, one problem with us dealing with it is we are so sure again about what caused it and why people act this way and get this. And we put values and labels and barriers and based on our assessments of what we can't fully see. The people who are sure, right, the ones who go around making and putting moral labels, here's the hard part. You fail to see too. Because sin is in your life too. Right? What if this psalm is saying you're seeking quick and immediate answers and solutions because of, to deal with the anxiety in your own heart? 
You're looking at people. You're looking at lifestyles. You're looking at a living. And it makes you anxious. And instead of turning to the Lord completely and fully trusting him, you turn to something else to fix your anxiety. Right? The anxiety of seeing somebody not act or look or be a certain way. And you want to relieve yourself of that anxiety by saying, they're just sinners. I don't want to have nothing to do with them. I don't want them all up in my community until they fixed. Right? Like You're trying to fix your anxiety. Here's what the psalmist is saying. God ain't anxious about it. He, he's not anxious. Because he sees it. You're anxious. I'm anxious. I'm always anxious. When Michelle was talking the other night about the justice for the trans and queer community, I was like, oh, Lord. Don't say those words. Use words like them folk who messed up or something, right? Use something else. Like, make it easy for me. Not, I can't handle it, right? Look, y'all, bottom line, humans and their sexuality is not easy. It's not academic. It is soulish. It is a mix of history and God, dignity and biology and brokenness and societal brokenness and predators and abuse and neglect and all kind of messiness. So there, where is the hope and help in engaging our sexuality? The church enters in and addresses and relates not as know-it-all, value setting, because the value's already been set. Label making, the label's already there, made in the image of the of God. Stereotyping, but believing this, God is with everyone. In the anxiety, in this confusion, in the sexual identity decision making, he is, first of all, where we can be found and where we can be followed. Which is everywhere, right? <laughs> Look with me again at verse 7 through 12. It says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there. If I take the winds of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light to you. And then again, verse 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Right? Is that right? Everlasting? Yes. The psalmist is declaring that there is no place no position, no mental state, no sin-laden spot inside or outside of me that God can't and hasn't found me in or see me even when I can't make sense of where I am and who I am and why this thing is dominating or controlling me or, or, or making me feel this way. And what that means is that our sexuality, regardless of where it is on the spectrum of things, that you with it or under it or over it, wherever it lives in or out of you, has not and cannot put you or anyone else, hear me, in a place where God is not present. Or where you can actually not be with God. Which means this, no one can be swallowed up and lost to God by their sexuality. 
No one can hide in it, in a labor or sexual lean from him. And we assume they are. If you were in the closet, guess what? He was already in there when you went in. The psalmist is saying all in your feelings sexually that no one knows, God is all in there too. And even if you are just all out with yours in the light, he says, he is not afraid of being in the open about his. He will find you and you can and will be found by him. In other words, sexuality does not and cannot trump the relationship of you with your God. You may have felt that like he is no longer in your life or the life of those who are sexually different than you hope them to be or think they should be. But because they are branded by God, they cannot be or go anywhere where he can't find them. And thus they cannot be self-identifying where they cannot have their eyes and hearts open to him and what he is saying and showing. God finds people you all ready? In their present sexuality. Right? Didn't he find you right when you were? Right? I know some of y'all's story. There's some words to describe some of y'all. And most of y'all I know stories of y'all heterosexual, right? And I got, Lord, have mercy. Sometimes I think, what was God doing up in your story? Right? He was sitting right there in the chair at that computer screen. Right? He was there. Right? If he weren't, then you wouldn't be found. And for you who are believers that are still looking at the screen, he's still there too. For your, for your sake, right? That is what the psalmist is saying and what the Bible teaches. God is not waiting on one square of the sexual spectrum of sexuality saying, if you come over here, you can be with me. He's not saying that. The psalmist is saying, if I go to this square or that square, guess what? You dare. Right? And yet we make this sexual diversity thing about, you know, if you come to this square sexually, that's where God lives. That's not what the scripture teaches. No, he finds those and is with those he is already with as their creator. So we look at the world of sexual diversity and, and, and say, you are what sexually? And you are identifying with what? You have been sexually altered in this way or what way? You, you, you in the what? Yes, God is there with you and will go there. And if you run, I got some other news for you. He not only is where you already are, he's where you can be followed we look at these verses, right? We look at, sometimes we look at the Psalms. I'm sorry, y'all. Had too much talking going on earlier and too much about the car and all that. But listen, when we look at this Psalm, I think it's easy to make the Psalm like some kind of ethereal song that David, oh Lord, right? No, dude is probably in a desert being chased down by somebody who doesn't like him. Right? He's experienced extreme anxiety and injustice because as he says at the psalm, bloodthirsty men are after me. Or they're trying to take my kingdom down. Or they're trying to take my sense of worth in God away. 
Right, so this is, a, this is a real deal situation. Some of you experienced abuse, some of you experienced injustice, some of you experienced being mistreated in so many ways. And he's saying, guess what? If I, I, I want to run, hear me now, I want to be able to run somewhere where I can feel secure. Okay, let me see if I can go this direction. Sometimes running to a secure place is what some of us do. I'm running to this sexuality. I'm running to this community. I'm running to this people because there are people who hate me and hate you because you made me, right? Like, and so I need to run somewhere. I'm running this community. I'm running to this identification. I'm running to that. I'm running to this. And, and here, here's another place people run. I'm running to self-deprecation. I just want to go to hell. Because no one loves me. I'm here. I don't know how I got here. I don't know why. I want to dress like this. I have no idea. Just want to die. That's what David's saying. And the world's making me want to die. Is there a believer around? Right? The psalmist is running like us to security to be hidden from being sad, alone, weird, bullied, running away to something or becoming someone to avoid being rejected by others and themselves. This is the bloodthirsty man. Because they are not the right shape. When I went through the misogyny sermon series and I was reading some stuff. The hell in bloodthirsty ways. You are loved or rejected or categorized because of your shape. Because of your size. Because of your DNA. Right? You're not the right shape or size to be traditionally accepted as a woman. I was in a Oh, I was going to bring this up, but I was in a, in a chicken place in Baltimore. I found myself there a lot. And, um, and this 12-year-old, this 12-year-old child, woman, girl, was there. And another woman came in, and this is the predator piece. And she said, and he, okay, she says, oh, I can tell how you look. They gotten to you yet? I'm like, what? Yeah. They're going to get you. You got that look. You got that shape. Don't worry, girl. We coming for you. And then she walks out. Predators. Based on size and shape. Skin color. All kind of things. Don't get asked to. I remember I had a conversation with a, with a woman who identified as lesbian. And for, for two years, she and I would go to lunch. And, and, and story after story, no one would ask me out because the image of beauty wasn't right. Now, I'm not trying to say that's why she became listen. It's too complicated, right? But people running, y'all. Not getting dates, looking in the mirror 
thinking I'm not a real woman. Look at my shape. Look at my size. Listen to my voice. Young men, look at my voice. It ain't changed yet. I can't be on a football team. Look at my interests. Look how I walk and talk. Look how I hold my hands. I like the fried chicken like mama, right? It, it, it makes sense to go here and run from the anxiety or pressures of not fitting in here or being what I wished I was. I can accept myself easier to feel good and intimate and sensual thinking I can avoid the pain and anxiety of wicked, mean, bullying people or even the voice inside of me who will call me fat or you act like a girl or why don't you like sports or why are you so sporty or why don't you want to be a housewife and all this and that and like anyone sexually, we run hard and fast to an identity corner or a culture, or cultic heterosexualism, right? Well, we just like, all right, I'm going to be Donna Reed. I'm so old. Sorry, y'all. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and be the housewife. I'm just going to go ahead and be the cultural, biblical man or woman. But that is hiding too. Because you're seeking to change yourself according to works and shame and not by grace. The psalmist says, you not only find me there, God. When I run there, you follow me. You take up residence regardless of where I choose to live sexually. You know what the definition and, and process of being a believer is? Y'all forgot? That you have been found as you are. And followed by God for the rest of your life. Wherever you go. Because of what Jesus has done. To call you his son or daughter. In that place. At that moment. Because of who he is. Not who you are. Or aren't. Or more of how you will become more like him one day. That's not your doing. That's his. That you will become brand new, rather, in his design and time and not yours. That we are justified and sanctified and glorified by faith in him and not where we sit or stand on the sexual spectrum. I know that's hard to hear. It's hard for me to say. Understanding that definition can and does include those who are on sexually diverse locations like the psalmist in hell and heaven, running in fear, anxiety, unsure, being preyed on by sexually ambitious world and people. And this is what it means that you can be God's child as one found and followed by God. Believers about how Jesus followed people there. Wherever they are and whatever they experienced, he did on the cross. He experienced hell on the cross, y'all. Which means this, all right? Y'all ready? He experienced the full feelings and results of sexual identity diversity and disparity. He experienced a social claustrophobia of, of loneliness and being in the closet on the cross. He experienced the isolation and shame of being taken and deceived and hooked by enemies of your sexuality into abuse and pornography. He went there on the cross. He experienced all the grief and confusion and fear and anxiety of, oh no, I can't believe I am attracted to this. Oh, that fear. I'm done. They're not even afraid of their sexuality. They're afraid of the rejection. 
He experienced that on the cross. It's God coming to flesh. If he didn't, then there'd be a group of people who had the one area that could not be saved. You know, in that place where God alone can find you and follow you, it's the place of salvation, y'all. How do we address it? We say, where are you? And they tell you. Where do you identify? And they tell you. And we don't say, okay, take three steps to the right, four steps back. If that's where God is, no. We say, you don't have to pass, go. You don't have to go to jail. Right? Like Monopoly, right? Just collect on God's grace where you are. Come on in. I'm not in charge of changing you. I'm not in charge of telling you what's next. But right now, God is here. And right there is where God saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. We have friends, we have family, we have children. We in here struggling right now. There are married people in here struggling because there's all kind of confusion in how their sexuality is presented and their demands and what they like and all kind. Lord, it's just as bad for, for, for heterosexuals. I can say, Lord, for my own sexuality, as with the others in this room, please find us, follow us. And in this spot where it's impossible for me to move, call me your son and daughter in the sexual spectrum square that I presently stand. And as you call people son and daughter at that place, help us to do the same as believers. Help us to hate bloodthirsty uh, societies and people who would degrade and demean human beings because of where they live and where they stand. Help us to remember our story. You could have been bloodthirsty, Lord, because we broke your law. You could have required our lives, but you sent Christ instead. Remind us of that. And Lord, please, I pray for wherever we are in a sexuality, help us not to give up or lose hope or be disingenuous or lie to ourselves about where we are. We don't have to lie about where we are. We can say we're addicted to this and we like this and we're attracted to this. And that night when nobody's thinking or knowing what's going on in our mind, I think about this. Lord, help us to know that in that place, grace comes by your Holy Spirit. Visit us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.